All right, if you want to open your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, we've put some under the chairs. You can grab one of those black Bibles. We'll be on page 1015, so 1015, 1015, if you want to follow along. Uh, we're going through a series we've called Partnership, and what we're doing as a church is we're moving towards a change in our culture where we actually have a formal partnership, where you actually would sign and commit and say, I want to formally be a part of Grace Bible Church, be a member, be a partner with the ministry here. Uh, and so as we are making that cultural shift, the elders and I have been praying through this for, for years and gave you some feedback on that a couple of weeks ago. You can listen to the recording if you missed that um, a couple of weeks ago when we started the series. Uh, but one of our uh, decisions that we came to is we needed to look at the scriptures and look at all the various scriptures in the New Testament that lay out what it looks like to be a part of God's church. So what does that look like to actively partner with a local church? This week, we're calling it Partnership in New Identity, uh, that to partner with the local church is to have this new identity as God's people. Um, to be this kingdom of priests is how we are described in the New Testament in 1 Peter. Um, we often find our identity in things other than what God has done for us, right? So what's the most common thing you ask someone when you meet them? What do you say? You say, what do you do, right? I hear a few mumbles. Yeah, what do you do for a living, right? Or you might say, where are you from? We, we put our identity in things like, where are we from? What do you do? What are your interests? And those things are fine, but I would really call those things secondary identity, right? Those are secondary characteristics. Our primary identity is what God says about us. Uh, and so we are called to identify as God identifies us, and we find that in Scripture. Uh, one of the ways that I've often thought about this is in the way that we think about where we come from, uh, a lot of you as little kids might have had questions about your parents, or your background. Some families know, you know, history about their family. Other families don't. Um, and we've seen this come up a lot in racial tensions here that we've seen the last uh, several months, well, over years and years of world history, but several months have been in the news more often in the United States. Uh, I would say there is benefits to knowing where you come from. There's benefits to knowing about your second I secondary identity, right? Benefits in knowing what you're good at, benefits in knowing what kind of parents you had. Uh, but the scripture calls us away from that and says, you know what, what's primary, what's the most important to you is what God has done for you. When we were visiting our uh, Malaysian missionaries, one of the families has a two-year-old um, and they're raising him bilingual. The, the dad is uh, white, mom is Mexican, grew up speaking Spanish, and so they're teaching their son to speak English and Spanish in this other country where people speak Malaysian and Chinese. So it's very complicated, right? Um, but we were reading a bedtime story to him one night. Me and Chris Webster, our worship leader, were babysitting so that our missionary couple could go out on a date. Uh, and the kid loves stories and he loves music. So Chris was playing his guitar while I sang a story to him. Uh, and it's this story. I don't know if you know this one. Eres mi mamá. Do you know Eres mi mamá? Great story. It's even better when you've got like a guitar and drums going in the background. It makes it a lot more fun. I might try that next time I read. Whenever I have grandchildren, I might try that. Uh, but the story is, are you my mother? Are you my mother? And it's a story about a baby bird that falls out of his nest, and he's kind of going from one animal to the next and one machine to the next, asking if it's his mother. And finally, in the end, he's reunited to his mother, and his mother uh, once again, reaffirms his identity for him, right? Well, well, we're all searching for that. Problem is we're scrambling and finding our identity in other places. God says our identity is 
in what he's done for us. So we're going to see that in 1 Peter. We're going to look at 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. Verses 9 through 12, where God is going to say, this is your identity. This is who you are. So now identify with what I've said about you. So 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the identity that God is calling us to. I'm going to pray and ask God to to help us to live this out um, and pray that his Holy Spirit would help us to understand his word as well. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that you would teach us what it means, that you'd help us to understand your plan for us, where you're taking us, what you're doing with us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to, to live up to this high bar, this high standard of calling that you've placed on our lives, that we would identify with what you say is true about us instead of merely identifying with our own passions and desires. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we move through the text, there's a, really a string of things that he says are new identity factors that we have in our life. And so the first thing that I really want to focus on is that we should identify as proclaimers. We should identify as proclaimers, because that's kind of the first specific this is what you should do, right, that he talks about in verse 9. So look at verse 9 again. Verse 9 says, you are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. Now, again, remember this. He is saying that by faith in Jesus, by what God has done for you through Jesus dying for your sins and giving you new life, that's what makes you a chosen race. So often in our society, we think being a chosen race is, you know, whatever... Uh, identity in a particular DNA or skin color or tribal background we think might be the best, right? So we hear chosen race and we think, oh, okay, he's, he's thinking that this is, you know, some particular tribal background is better than another. What he's actually talking about in the New Testament is all races of humanity coming together and by faith being a new chosen race, right? And so we need to set aside our previous, you know, the race we grew up with saying that's the most important thing, we set that aside and we say, no, the most important thing now is belonging to God's race, being a part of his people, his tribe. Um, There are beautiful things about having a good heritage, right? Uh, I remember growing up, I I went to these Scottish games. Have any of y'all ever heard of that, Scottish games? Um, So you can hear bagpipes. Bagpipes are awesome, right? Fire bagpipes are even better. But you can go to the Scottish games, you can hear bagpipes, you can see these guys that throw these telephone poles. Have you ever seen that before? It's a thing, apparently, I guess they just do that every day in school growing up in Scotland. Um, So they throw telephone poles, they throw boulders, it's these competitions that they have. And so I can remember as a child thinking, yeah, I want to identify with that, right? Like, that's the kind of Scott that I want to be, right? Of course, I can't pick up a telephone pole or a, or a boulder, so it didn't really work out very well for me. Um, but there are, like, you know, kind of cool things about your racial background that you might identify. You might enjoy some music from your racial background or something about some accomplishment of your great-grandparents, and that's fine. I'm not saying that you have to say that with complete rejection, everything about my background is terrible. 
I'm just saying, don't make that your hope, okay? Don't make that your hope. Here, Peter is saying, our hope is in what God has done for you. That is your true race. Do you see the distinction? So it's okay if you're, you know, celebrating the food or the songs of your people. That's fine. Don't make that your hope, though. Your hope is Jesus. Your hope is what Jesus has done for you. He goes on and he describes it in in another way, right? He says, chosen race, and then he says, a royal priesthood. So what kind of race, what kind of tribe are we now? Well, we're actually a tribe of priests. We're a tribe of priests. And he's pulling this from Exodus chapter 19. God's intention for Israel is that they would be that kind of people. And although there were some racial aspects to God's work with Israel, you could be born into that tribe. There were always open doors for people of other races to join that tribe. So I want to make sure we understand, even though that God's work now is this kind of broad, multi-ethnic, worldwide work in the church, even in Israel, it was multi-ethnic. Even in Israel, people were being folded into the people of God. And God said in Exodus chapter 19 that his intentions for his people was that they would be a kingdom of priests. That was his intention. Now, did they have priests, special priests that served at the altar and served at the temple? Yes, they had a group of special leaders they called priests, but that didn't mean that the rest of the people weren't supposed to be priests as well. And we see that same dynamic in the church today. There are leaders in a church, right? You might have leaders in a church. At our church, we have elders and pastors. In other churches, you might have bishops. You know, they call them different things in different churches depending on traditions. There are leaders, but God is saying all of you are to be leaders, right? There's a sense in which you should all be leaders. That doesn't mean we tear down all official leadership. It just means there's a responsibility we all have. We all should be interceding for our friends and our neighbors and our family and our city and our world. A priest's job is to explain who God is and through sacrifices to bring people into the presence of God. Well, we're not going to sacrifice any bulls or chickens or cats or anything here, okay? But we are, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we're going to point you through that sacrifice to how you can approach God. We cannot approach God in our own sinfulness, but because Jesus died to pay the price for our sins, now we can approach God. And so you guys should be bought into that just as much as I am. As, as an official leader of the church, I'm not the only priest of the church, right? We're all priests. We're an entire royal priesthood. Everyone that belongs to Jesus has a role. Everyone has a job to do. So we are supposed to identify with this job that he's going to summarize as being proclaimers. So that's why I used that word proclaimer. He goes on and says, you're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. And then he says, that you may proclaim. So why has he made you his people? That you should proclaim what he's done for you. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he's talking about there was a time when you were just kind of stumbling around in darkness. Uh, Any of you ever go to a strange place? Maybe you're staying at a hotel room. The lights are all out. And you're trying to make it to the bathroom, right? Or to the coffee pot. Has that ever happened to you? And, and you're like breaking your leg on something because you just don't know where you are. At your own house, it's a little easier because you've kind of memorized where things are, right? But when you're in a strange place, you're just like, this is, this is kind of terrifying, right? And what this is saying is that because of what Jesus has done for us, it's brought us out of that kind of stumbling darkness into a light where we can see, where we can have life and health. Um, the, the weather right now is a good reminder of this as, as well, right? One of the beautiful times that we have in central Texas is when the sun is out and it's not burning us alive, right? 
it's just a beautiful time. We, we just go out and we just want to be in the light without frying, right? And so these little glimpses we get of fall, uh, sorry, for those of you that are not from here, it's not going to last. So go enjoy it while it's here. It's going to go away, then it might come back. Um, but we just, we love to be in the light. And, and what we're told here is that spiritually speaking, we've been brought out of that stumbling darkness into the light. And we are to then tell people about it. We are to proclaim what this is. What does it mean to be a proclaimer? It, it was interesting when I was studying this, um, commentators noted that this word, this particular Greek word for pro- proclaim is only used this place in the New Testament, right? Uh, the English word, you know, translates other places in the New Testament. But this Greek word only appears here. And the meaning of it is not like super profound. It, it basically means proclaim, right? It means to tell somebody something. So we are to tell people about what God has done for us, taking us out of our stumbling darkness into his marvelous light. We're to tell people what God has done in our lives through Jesus. But what's interesting is there's a connotation because this Greek word is used often in the Greek translation of the Psalms. So what are the Psalms about? Well, the Psalms are often about private prayer, but also they're often about the corporate worship of God's people, right? And so there's this connotation of us proclaiming as a group. Uh, When we come together to sing songs about who Jesus is, we're proclaiming who he is. When we have a public worship service, this is something we can invite our friends to, and they'll think that half of what we do is really weird, right? And really strange. But they'll also hear about Jesus. And that's our goal. When we come together, our goal is to encourage ourselves as we remind ourselves of who Jesus is, as we sing these songs and study his word together. But it's also to proclaim to our city. This is a public event. We invite the whole city to come and and hear about who Jesus is and what he's done. So this word has that connotation, that kind of public proclamation. Um, God's people should always see themselves as broadcasting stations. So we say we're going to gather together and be God's people broadcasting what God has done to the nations, just like it says repeatedly in the Psalms. In the Psalms, God's people Israel are always inviting the nations to come and see who God is and what he's done. And we, we try to do that as well. But there's also a personal meaning to proclaiming, right? You could proclaim what God does just in a, in a casual conversation, right? And I want to call you to that because Peter uses that language later on. If you flip over one page and look at 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about what it looks like to just tell people in a conversational way about who God is and what he's done for you. I'm going to read 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13. Just to give you a little background, this whole letter has an emphasis on suffering, because you know what, when, when you suffer, it's easy to start to doubt and wonder if you really are God's people, right? If you're sick, or if you're going through horrible relational mess, uh, or if your job is all falling apart, if you're going through hard times, it's easy to wonder and to doubt if God really loves you. And so Peter is writing to people who are suffering, saying, you know what, God is still at work in your life. So he says in 1 Peter 3.13, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So he's saying, basically, nobody's going to want to hurt you if you're doing good, right? It's a general principle. Sometimes bad stuff still happens. Jesus promised in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. So we know bad stuff is still going to happen in this world. But generally, if we try to do what's right, things will go well for us. Peter goes on in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed, right? Saying, even if you're suffering, that doesn't mean God has removed his hand of blessing from you. God is still with you. Look at verse 15. Well, excuse me, I didn't finish 14. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, he says, nor be troubled. 
Then 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So here he's saying, first of all, be good, okay? The world has gone to pot. Everybody's dishonest. It's a world of suffering and and dishonesty and terrible things. Don't use that as an excuse to join in, right? Saying, be zealous and and do what's good. And generally, if you do what's good, you're not going to get into trouble. But you'll still get into trouble. And when you get into trouble, recognize that Jesus is still good. Still honor him in your heart, right? Still make place for him. Make room for Jesus, as it says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here he's saying, be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you. Give a reason. Explain. Why why do you have hope? You're you're dying of cancer. Why do you have hope? You lost your job. Why do you have hope? Uh, You've been a victim of great abuse and injustice. Why, Why do you have hope? Well, our hope is in Jesus, not in our circumstances. And if you can't explain that to people, then you're not ready to give that answer, to give that defense. Because people are going to ask you in the midst of your suffering why you have hope. And so here Peter is saying that being a people who are God's people, who are made to be priests that bring people to God, who are made to be proclaimers that proclaim that God has brought us out of darkness into light, one of the opportunities, one of the ways you'll get to proclaim him aside from corporate gatherings, is you'll get to proclaim him in in your suffering, right? So in a way that's encouraging, in a way that's discouraging, right? Like it's encouraging because I'm saying you don't don't have to be a preacher to proclaim Jesus. Bad side of that is, well, God's going to use suffering in your life to give you an opportunity to proclaim him. And I don't mean that like God's going to like purposely pour on the suffering. I'm not saying it in that sense, but we live in a world of suffering. So so that's the world we live in. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this world of suffering that you live in? Are you going to hope in Jesus? Are you going to abandon all hope because all your hope is in this world? Here he's saying, no, your hope is not in this world. It's in Jesus. So in the midst of your suffering, when you still have hope, people are going to want to know about that. And you're going to have opportunities to talk about Jesus in the midst of that. So see your suffering as an opportunity to share who Jesus is with the world. Paul said in Philippians 1 that he would really prefer to die and be with Jesus, right? He's like one of the holiest guys in the Bible, absolutely loves Jesus, says, yeah, this world is really terrible. I'd like to just die and go to heaven. And that's, that is a spiritual pr- perspective. But he says, I, I believe that God is keeping me here for fruitful labor so that I can serve others, so I can help others. That's why I'm still here. As God's people, we should all see our life that way. Your purpose is not to have your best life now. Your purpose is through your suffering to proclaim that Jesus is your true hope. In the midst of the suffering, even though they're suffering, even though they're bad things, show people that Jesus can be hoped in. Um, Some practical things that we can do, I think, that are really important uh, is make sure that we don't isolate ourselves from non-Christian people. So one of the things I love about our church is this is a church where non-Christian people feel Uh, Welcome. We have people all the time. We're we're glad you're here. People that don't believe in Jesus come. They check it out. Poke, kick the tires, right? You know, like, what is is this? What is Jesus about? Ask questions. That's the kind of environment we want to have here publicly. 
But what I've noticed over the years as a Christian is that Christians naturally begin to isolate. They begin to hang out with other Christians. So for some of you, you're like, man, that's, that's not an issue at all. I have plenty of non-Christian friends, so it's not an issue. Don't worry about it. But for a lot of us, we just kind of keep gravitating towards more and more being with Christians because it's uh, encouraging to us to be with people that, are, that agree with us. But part of God's purposes for you is that you would have non-Christian friends, that you would be a proclaimer, that you would testify to the hope that we have in Jesus to people that don't yet know the hope that we have. Um, another thing that I think is really cool is sometimes we're isolated because of having young children. How many of you, raise your hands if you have young children. Okay, we've got quite a few people here. I know we have a lot of people in the earlier service as well. When you have young children, you can sometimes feel very isolated, right? Raise your, you don't have to admit this, but just raise your hand in your heart if you sometimes feel isolated, right? Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I get some amens. Um, it can be very isolating. What I want to encourage you with is this, that's actually part of this proclaiming stuff that, that God has called us to. I have a picture here of a little child with a magnifying glass. It's just supposed to kind of symbolically represent to you a child's curiosity, right? Children are curious. One of my favorite things when my kids were little was rediscovering everything, right? As you grow older, you become cynical. You're like, yeah, that's boring. That's boring. I've been there, done that, Right? But when your kid sees it for the first time, right? Like your two-year-old is in the grass and sees a doodle bug. They're like, a doodle bug. This is amazing, right? And it's infectious. You're like, yeah, it is amazing, right? Isn't God amazing? And it's this beautiful exercise we get to reproclaim the excellencies of the God that we have. We get to practice. When we interact with little children, practice seeing them ask why and discover the world. And we get to practice articulating who God is, and why we have hope in this world that is both amazing and broken. Why do we have hope? Well, practice that with your children. See this as a glorious time of getting to be a proclaimer if you have little kids. And I would say if you don't have little kids, um, try to be a better uncle and aunt. Get around some little kids, right? Be a better grandparent. Spend time with little children. It is just a wonderful exercise to help us to practice proclaiming the excellencies of who God is. It's a great opportunity. If you're looking for opportunities, uh, we can get you connected to the nursery and the children's ministry. We would love to get you involved there. It's a great, in all seriousness, it's a great way to practice speaking and testifying to who God is. One of the best things that that I ever got to do as a minister is get to be a children's minister because it forced me to try to speak more clearly, right? We can kind of be lazy when we talk to other adults, but it forces us to break things down more simply and more clearly when we talk to kids. The other thing I want us to see is that we need to identify with neediness. We want to uh, identify with neediness. Uh, 1 Peter 2.10, so back to chapter 2. In verse 10, uh, he's quoting from Hosea. So just a little summary, Hosea is an Old Testament prophecy where God comes to an Old Testament prophet and he says, hey, holy man of God, I want you to marry a woman of the streets, right? Basically a harlot, a prostitute. And so he marries an unfaithful woman and she continues to be unfaithful to him. Uh, and they have children and she leaves and the prophet goes and buys her back literally off the slave block and he continues to pursue her in his love. And God says, as you do that, you're gonna be showing a picture. You're gonna be prophesying through your actions about what kind of husband I am as the God of my people. And God is saying that he is a faithful husband loving us and pursuing us even when we are turning from him and running away. And so that's where all this comes from. 
And so this language is quoted in Hosea, and it says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Every single one of us, if we are God's people, should be able to identify with that kind of neediness, with a heart that wanders from God. Remember the old hymn, it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We are all prone to wander. Now, we sang another song that was saying nothing can snatch us out of Jesus' hand, right? It's very clear. We're told that in John chapter 10. I don't believe we can lose our salvation, but I believe even if we, you know Jesus, you have a heart that can be tempted to hope in other things and in other places and in other experiences. So we all have this neediness where we need to be brought back again to Jesus to see that we can trust him, that he really is better than all these other uh, false saviors and other alternative saviors. So we need to be able to identify with that neediness. Even if you've been walking with Jesus for years, he says, you used to not be a people, now you're God's people. You used to not have mercy, now you have mercy. What do you do with this if you grew up in a Christian family? I know some of you grew up in a Christian family where you believed in the mercy of Jesus from your earliest day. Like you may not be able to remember not trusting in Jesus' memory or mercy, right? You may not be able to remember that. You may, you may just always have memories of his faithfulness and you heard about Jesus and how he forgives us on the cross and you believed it. I would say that is a good and beautiful thing. That is awesome. Praise the Lord for that experience. And what I would have you understand is that was the method by which God brought you out of being not under mercy. That was a method by which God brought you from being not his people, right? Just because you can't remember before you trusted him doesn't mean there wasn't a time when you didn't trust him, right? And so just give thanks to God that he, he put you in that Christian family. That's a, that's a beautiful grace that he gave you where you believe from your earliest days. Praise the Lord from that, but you need to be able to associate that, yeah, I'm, I'm prone to wander too. And there was a time uh, before I heard the gospel when I was four and I believed it, right? There was a time when, when I didn't know mercy. There was a time when I wasn't the people of God. We are made the people of God um, not because of the color of our skin, not because of the neighborhood we grew up in. We're made the people of God by the mercy of God. The expression of that continually through the New Testament is, is faith. How do you know you're God's people? You trust him. You trust him. So that's really the question. Do you trust him? And if you trust him, then you can identify with neediness. All human beings need him. So often, uh, people from the outside think the church is this gathering of people where we think we have our stuff together, right? Do you ever have non-Christian friends that think, oh yeah, church people think they're better than other people and we're just all gathering here having a party about how awesome we are, right? When that is exactly the opposite of what the church is. The church is having a party saying, we are sinners and we need Jesus. That, that's our party. And by his grace, we now have a new identity as being the people of God. He's taken us out of that sinner identity and put us into the mercy identity. So we need to be able to identify with that need for mercy so that we can enjoy the mercy that he gives us through Christ. Uh, I grabbed a picture here of someone with a blank name badge. Why don't you just think about it? What, where do you get your identity from? What, what do you write there? I mean, obviously, in a concrete way, you, you would write your name on an ID badge, right? But in a bigger sense, do you identify, do you find fulfillment in saying, you know what, I have this job, 
or I'm really successful? Or are you like an Uncle Rico and you're like, I used to be able to throw the ball so far, right? Like, what is it that you identify with? But that's, that's ultimately not where you're going to get your identity from, right? You're going to get your identity from God and what he's done for you. And as you identify with your neediness, that you need an identity, that will help you to enjoy what he gives you, that he gives you himself, that he makes you his through the gift of salvation, through what Jesus has done for us. The last thing that we'll see here is that we should identify as healthy. We should identify as healthy. Look at the last two verses, verses 11 and 12. So 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So you're also sojourners and exiles. You're God's people, but this isn't really your home, right? You're temporarily here. You're, you're on assignment. Like Paul said, I'd, I'd rather go be with God in heaven, right? But he's got me here on assignment to love other people, to serve other people. Same thing, the same idea here. He's saying you're our sojourners, you're exiles. One of my favorite translations is, I, I think it's NIV. I can't remember which translation says you're strangers, Anybody have that in your Bible? You are strangers here, right? Like you're outsiders. You don't really belong to this world. And so in the midst of living in this broken world of of pain, we should identify as, hey, we're on temporary assignment here, and we should identify with the health that God gives us. Look at the way he describes this progression. He says, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. This word passions is a common New Testament word. Uh, It means desires, or you could translate it as over-desires. And the idea is it's these things that we desire more than Jesus himself. That's how it's most often used in the New Testament. Very rarely it's used actually for desiring God, and that would be a good thing, right? But most of the time, it's used for these over-desires we have for other things, for false saviors. And he's saying here we have these over-desires coming from our flesh where we just desire certain things, right? Uh, And we desire those things in a sense that is just out of control and we think they will really satisfy us. We see this with addictions to pleasure or addictions to dysfunctional relationships or addictions to drugs or alcohol or sexuality. There's all kinds of things we can be addicted to. And of course, there's more respectable things you can be addicted to. You can be addicted to respect and rank and a good job, right? And still, those are inordinate desires. Those are passions of your flesh. And he says, abstain from those things. Pull back from finding your satisfaction in those things. Recognize that only Jesus can take care of you. Abstain from those passions of the flesh. Why? He says, because they wage war against your soul. Those things are like suicide bombers, right? Those things are like terrorists that want to destroy you. And we always think that they're good, Right? We think these things are good. We think that we'll find pleasure and that it'll make everything better. And we forget that it's actually killing us. And so one of the calls of the New Testament is to recognize that sin is actually deadly. I see this most often with pornography addiction. Because guys are under the illusion that pornography is not killing them. And I just want to encourage you that it is killing you. It's destroying you. And you should find help. Don't just suffer in silence. Don't just keep it a secret, but but find help. And it's not like the the moment you go to seek help, it'll magically all go away, right? It's going to be a lifelong battle. But find help because it's killing you. It's destroying you. And there's this illusion that it's not hurting anybody else. No, it's destroying your relationships. And you're enslaving the women that are involved in that industry. 
And it's changing the chemistry in your brain. It's changing your ability to enjoy normal life because you're enjoying artificial life. And that's just one example, right? That's just an easy example because in our time, in our culture, that's a big issue, right? But that can, that can happen to us from all kinds of desires. It could, it could be job. Like I said, it could be a respectable sin. Like you could just be addicted to work. And you're like, hey, I'm taking care of my family. Well, yeah, but your family doesn't know you. Maybe you should set that job aside and find a less satisfying job, a job that doesn't fulfill the desires of your flesh so much so that you could be there more for your family. There's all kinds of things that we can fill into that slot of desires of our flesh that are destroying our soul. Well, what should we do instead? Instead of that, well, number one, find help, ask for help, confess sin, confess your sin to God. First John 1, 8 and 9 says, confess your sins to God and he'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you. He'll start working on that in your heart. But also James 5 says, confess to one another. Talk to another Christian. Say, I need help. Will you pray for me? And that will help you start to take new steps and start to help you find recovery. We have a ministry focused on addiction recovery called Celebrate Recovery. We'd love to get you involved there. It's on Monday nights. It's a great ministry. But really, everything we do here as a church is about helping us to trust in Jesus more than our addictions, right? So we want to help you in that process He goes on in verse 12 and says, here's an alternative. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that word Gentiles is the nations, right? So those other people that are not part of God's people, when they see what you're doing, they're like, oh, you're stupid, you're evil. And he's saying, live such a good life that they can't even do that. Right? Live, live a life that blesses other people and serves other people. This word honorable, this honorable conduct, it's, it's a word uh, that means something like the good life. It's like the beautiful life. It's kind of a philosophical term from the Greek world. What does it look like for you to live the good life? Whenever I think of the good life, I think of allergy commercials, right? Um, it's starting to be cedar season. So again, for those of you that are not from here, if you start sneezing like crazy, it's uh, cedar, right? Juniper, really. But it's this terrible tree that makes everybody sick in the fall here, okay? Um, But if you take just the right magic allergy pill, you will live the good life, right? Everything will be perfect. You'll be so happy. Not, Not really. Really, Peter's saying here, the good life is living out good conduct. It's just serving people in love, obeying God. The way James talks about it, he says, true religion is this, to keep yourself unspotted from the world, right? So moral purity but also to care for widows and orphans in their distress. So James talks about some of how you actually live the good life is by serving hurting people and keeping yourselves morally pure. Sounds kind of square and old-fashioned, but he says that's the good life. That's where you'll find real fulfillment, and, and that will actually change then what people think of you. When you serve others in love, then outsiders will look in and go, oh, yeah, I guess they're not as crazy as I thought. It's another way that we proclaim who Jesus is, by living out this healthy life of trusting God instead of trusting in our passions and our flesh. It says that they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Most people interpret that day of visitation as like the end of the world, right? When, when Jesus comes back. It can also have just a general, uh, a general concept of the, the day of inspection, right? Or the day when uh, things come to light. And so it could mean in general, there will just be critical moments in people's lives, Days of inspection, days of retrospection, where people are like, oh, I'm, 
I'm rethinking this now. And we are called as God's people to identify as those who live in a healthy way. Instead of relying on addictions to the passions of our flesh, we rely on Jesus and live in a new way. And that will help people to see who God is. One of the greatest New Testament examples of this, I think, is Jesus left us the example of foot washing. I found this uh, picture of a statue online. It's just a, a famous icon of who Jesus is. And he said, this is how you should love one another. And we're told in John chapter 13, right before Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet, it said that Jesus knew who he was, where he came from, and where he was going. That, that's identity. Jesus was solid on his identity as being beloved by the Father. The only way you will be able to endure and wash other people's feet, and I don't mean literally washing people's feet, right? Because modern hygiene, it's not that much of a need. But the only way you will be able to serve people in humble ways and love people in practical ways is if your identity is settled. You know that your needs are taken care of by Jesus. Because the Father loves you, because you are his beloved, even though you're strangers and exiles and sojourners, because you know he's caring for you, that will free you to be able to serve others. Because now I don't have to work for my ego, I can just work to serve others, because I know Jesus has already taken care of me, right? I don't have to work to satisfy my flesh, because I know Jesus will take care of me, so I can serve other people in love. That's what he is calling us to. That's our new identity. That's the vocation when we say, I want to be a part of God's work in the world, I want to be a part of a local church, which is a broadcasting station of who Jesus is and what he's done in the world, you're signing up, you're signing up to represent Jesus, to try to live a healthy life of walking with him, not perfection, but just live a life of humble dependence on Jesus. That, that's what we're being called to. That's what we are being told to identify with. Partnership in a new identity. As we look at this picture, uh, we're reminded again and again of, of all the other things that we might identify with, right? My prayer for you is that this week, the Holy Spirit would give you clarity to recognize what it is you've been identifying with. What is it that if was taken away from you, it would feel like your life was over? If, if that thing was taken away from you, you wouldn't really know what to do anymore with yourself. Well, chances are that is a, that's an alternative identity. That's a secondary identity that you're making primary. And my prayer for us is not that we would um, never identify with any secondary things again, but that we would find our ultimate hope in what God has done for us, that we would find our ultimate hope in being God's people, being beloved by the Father. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond together in worship. God, thank you that you love us, and thank you that you give us a new identity. We pray that you would teach us as a church um, and even just beyond these walls, you would, you would teach us across the world as your people to not identify with our tribe or our language or our color, but that we would identify with you, your work in the world. And as we do that, we would live holy lives. We'd abstain from the passions of the flesh. We'd serve others and live in honorable ways. We'd do good works. And we'd be more about your business than our own. God, teach us to do this. You, you know we cannot do this without you. So we pray your spirit would empower us and strengthen us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.